if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, you can uh, go to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll continue on this morning. Let me go ahead and read for you chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our own flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Well, last week we began our discourse with a number of statistics that demonstrated the vast majority of professing Christians in America have a poor view of sin. It's often the case that even in the healthiest of church circles, certain sins are deemed to be of no consequence, a mere way of life, or at its worst, perhaps even celebrated. It's imperative that the Christian views sin the same way God views sin. After all, why bother being a Christian if we refuse to adopt God's way of thinking and believing? It's a bit silly to do that, and unfortunate, that's what many Christians do. They profess Christ and yet refuse to believe the things he teaches. To be a Christian is to submit to the lordship of Christ. It's to abandon your own thoughts, your own beliefs, your own feelings in exchange for those things which Christ says are good and true. To be a Christian is to allow the Holy Spirit to give you new feelings, a sanctified view of life, and to be rightly adjusted according to the word of truth rather than our former state according to our fleshly lusts. Now, over the course of the last few weeks, we've endeavored to do that which the Apostle Paul aimed to do in Ephesians chapter 2, and that's to demonstrate the depths of sin. And so we've spoke about this, spoken about this for the last several weeks, the darkness of sin, and not just those sins that we think of as being particularly evil, such as murder or adultery or what have you, but really all of sin and how dark and evil it is. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that the worst of sins is at the core issues of the heart. And so he speaks of some of these things that we might consider big sins, and then basically says, no, you don't understand, it's far worse than you even think. Even the smallest, most insignificant sin to you is enough to condemn you to hell. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, Jesus says, You've heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And so it's not just the murderer that deserves hell, but it's also the one who is, maybe we would say, simply angry at his brother. It's not the majority of it's not that the majority of Christians would deny that murder is a terrible sin. We do. It's an inexcusable evil. But unfortunately, there are plenty of sins who would so easily justify anger. 
towards a brother as to not even bat an eye at it. They may say something like this, well, it was just momentary anger. They might say, I didn't act out on it, so I'm not as bad as the guy who murders. They might profess, well, everyone gets angry here and there as a way to justify their own sin. Perhaps we've even justified sin in this way, and yet Jesus himself says it's not just the murderer who's guilty, it's the one who's angry. Well, he goes on. In verse 27, Jesus sets the same standard again, but this time with adultery. He says, have you heard, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery to all. We would say, amen. But Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In verse 33, he says, again, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, Anything beyond these is of evil. That's quite the standard. It's quite the standard, and yet this is God's standard. God alone gets to determine what is sinful and what is good. And so Paul, in our passage too, wants us to recognize the depravity that we were saved out of. It's easy for the believer to look at those sins which he's never committed and say, thank God I'm not like that, or yes, that's absolutely despicable. Thank God I'm not a murderer, but then if you apply Jesus' standards, perhaps we come to discover every one of us is just as guilty as the murderer, as the one who acted it out physically. We're guilty just by way of our own anger. It's when we realize that we need grace, that we are just as evil as those who would turn, who we might turn our nose up towards, that we can look at the cross and realize how great our salvation really is. There were two thieves on a cross. Both were guilty, both worthy of death, both deserving hell in their sins, and only one owns his sin. He sees that he deserves his penalty, that it's just, and he casts his faith in Christ. In that moment, in Christ's response is, today you will be with me in paradise, while the other thief mocks and scowls and is destined to hell. They both deserved hell, but the humbled thief knew that he was no better than the other one. He knew that they were the same and that the only thing that separated them was the fact that he cried out to Christ at the last minute, being humbled, knowing that he didn't deserve anything, but hoping in the grace of God through Jesus. And certainly, he received that grace, according to the response of Christ. So Paul, in an attempt to help us see the cross, much like that thief whom Jesus said of, today you'll be in paradise, points us in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3 to the sinful condition that we were in. No different than that thief before we too met Christ. 
And so he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that you lived according to the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. And he goes on to say, again, just repeating it, and among them you too were formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. He's very repetitive. It's almost as though the apostles suspected the Ephesians would or maybe perhaps could wax cold in their view of their own salvation. It's not that they didn't love Christ, they did. He mentions, in fact, in the previous chapter, both their love for the Lord Jesus as well as their love for the saints. So he believed that they were truly saints, but perhaps he knew their understanding and growth could be stunted held back based on whether or not they had a true grasp of the sin that required the grace of God in their lives to start with. Paul knew all too well that the one who is forgiven much would love much. He knew that. And he knew that if the Ephesians viewed sin rightly, that if you and I view sin rightly, then they too would come to understand that they had been forgiven much, and in the midst of that, their love for Christ would increase. And so this is the source of the question for us this morning. Do we know that we have been saved from heinous, wicked sins? Do we know that we've been saved from much? And if we know that, do we love Christ in a way that reflects that Reality, and that's the apostles' hope and desire. Well, I want to take a little time this morning to conclude our passage from last week. At the very end, which we didn't have time to cover, the last thing the Apostle Paul tells us is the summation of what we were before Christ. Everything he's said, he sums up in one last phrase when he says that by nature... We were children of wrath. You see, if we're to view man in his state of sin rightly, then this is the only conclusion we can come to, that men are by nature children of wrath. In this description, we see that all of mankind is guilty, and not only guilty, but the subject of God's wrath. That is, until they are redeemed by God's grace. No man can be found righteous outside of Christ. That's an impossibility. Children of wrath are those who are lost and headed quickly towards eternal damnation. And so Paul sums up our condition in that phrase. I mean, the reality is he makes it quite clear that there's no such thing as an innocent person according to to God's word. Every man is subject to original sin. Every man is born into sin, walks according to this world, loving their sin, doing the deeds of their flesh, living out of their lusts and their envies and covetousness, so much so that they obtain the title children of wrath. Speaking of children and wrath, if you've 
an original sin. If you've ever had or been around children, and we all have, you know that this is true. You know that this is true. Perhaps some have this idea that babes are innocent, but consider the fact that you don't have to teach young children how to lie. Isn't it amazing? They know how to do it already. You don't have to teach them how to steal or to be greedy or to be selfish with their toys. It's almost as though that all comes natural. No, what we have to teach them is how to love and how to share and how to be selfless and how to be kind. And this is very simply because of the reality of sin. We're born into it and we grow up loving it and then we live by it being guided by Satan's influence in the world, according to the Apostle Paul, so much so that we're deemed by God to be children of wrath. And so Paul says, and you, and you were, such were some of you. There are some in the world who would say that all people are children of God, but Scripture says that without God's intervention, you're children of wrath. And we linger here a bit because this doctrine, the doctrine of God's wrath, the doctrine of original sin, it confronts every human being. And it matters to each one of us. And it matters to each one of us still in this very moment, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer. We never escape its truth. We're either a recipient of God's wrath or we're saved from God's wrath. And there's never a time when it doesn't matter because we're all involved in it. And our future and eternity is dependent upon our relationship to it. And so remember, the very reason the apostle makes mention of it here is because of the reality that we can never fully grasp the greatness of God's love and power towards us unless we understand sin and depravity and the wrath of God. Well, this doctrine is not only essential as it pertains to our own faith, In other words, it doesn't just affect how deeply we understand God's love for us, but it also has a significant impact on how or perhaps even if we evangelize. Well, what do I mean? Well, think about it. Millions of people who have very little thought of the Lord Jesus Christ will attend church services all over the country today. They'll attend services throughout the week for Christmas, and a great deal of them will see no need for Christ in their lives before they attend or after they attend. Why? Why is it that so many just simply do not believe they need Christ? Why is it that they feel the answers to the solution of their problems lie everywhere else, with politicians or perhaps with friends or maybe with family or a career, or perhaps they're caught up in fixing systems. And why is it that so many have no thought of Christ, but they believe the problems of the world are so-called racist systems or so-called systems of unequally distributed power, or perhaps that the right government isn't yet in place? Why is it that Jesus isn't even a consideration for them? Well, I think the answer in the end is very simple. They don't believe in him because they see no need for him. They don't believe him because they don't believe they're sinners. And because they don't believe they're sinners, they don't believe they need a savior. Why do you need a savior if you're basically a good person? They don't know the truth of God's holy standards, of his absolute and perfect justice that demands his wrath. 
be poured out on sin. And so understanding that we were once children of wrath not only affects our love for God, but it also has an effect on our evangelism. Do we have a deep desire to see those around us come to Christ? Because we know that they are what we were, that they're children of wrath. And so Paul prays that we would come to understand the greatness of the power of God in our salvation, and to help us, he points us to the very sin that was the cause of our need for God's love. And so when we look at those around us without Christ, we should understand their need for the love of God. We, we, we realize, when we realize the depths from which Christ saved us, we can see the heights of his love towards us. And why wouldn't we want that for those around us? Surely, when we understand this, we see the great need for evangelism because we understand that the hopelessness, the darkness, the desperate condition in which those around us are still in need what we have. They need the saving grace of God. And so it's not merely important for our own love and affection towards Christ, but understanding where we came from is important as we share the gospel with others around us. Because they, without Christ, are still children of wrath. And so Paul ends on that. So he starts in chapter 1 by giving us all these deep, rich truths, and then he opens in verse 2 by taking us back to our sinfulness. But then we come to verse 4 which is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning, there are no two greater words of hope for all of mankind than the first two words of verse 4. These two words point us to the great work of God, the wondrous and astonishing saving grace of God, which Paul then spends the next several verses expounding upon. He says... But, God, you were sinners, you were living this way, you were children of wrath, but God. It's the best two words a sinner could ever, ever hear. It's interesting, when I was considering where we would land this morning, because it wasn't planned, I found myself just really amazed at God's providence. In all the places we could end up in Ephesians, we end up here the Sunday before Christmas. I think that's particularly special. You might wonder why. Well, the reason that's pretty special, at least to me, is because the entire Christmas message is wrapped up in these two words, but God. In these two words, we find, in some sense, the whole message of Christianity to the world. You were something... But God, you were dead in your trespasses, but God, you were dead in your sins, but God, you were walking according to the ways of Satan in the course of this world, but God, you were children of wrath headed towards eternal damnation. And in verse four, but God, it's the message every manger scene attempts to convey, isn't it? 
It's the message every godly Christmas Eve service will have is the message of, but God. Grammatically, but is an adversative coordinating clause here. In other words, it introduces an action of God towards the sinner in contrast to where they were. Anytime you see the word but, it's important. It's about to be a contrast of some sort. This is the Christmas message, but God. It's a message of intervention. You are children of wrath, but God. Something is now about to change. Listen to it another way. Again, in Luke chapter 1, we have a but God, and it is a little more fully described here. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. And kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord... May it be done according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, the world had no hope, right? It was dark. It was just as full of evil then as it was today. And then came this angel with the message of, but God. This time it came in its fullness When an angel told the young virgin, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will have no end. But God, the apostle says, but God, the angel says, But God, the gospel, says, I mean, how really, truly good is our God? Just think about it. From every, from the very beginning, God has demonstrated his love over and over. He covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. They sinned, but God covered their nakedness. He saved Noah and his family from the flood. He made a covenant with Abraham. He spoke through the Prophets, he saved his people from Egypt time and time again. Weaved all throughout scriptures, we see these but God moments. Each time, man deserves the worst. But we see God in his loving kindness intervene, leading up to the ultimate promise of the one who would come, who would bear the sins of the world. The one who 
bears the wrath of God on our behalf, the Lord Jesus. All of this we ought to consider when we see those two words, but God. So the Apostle Paul's desire was to show us how great the love of God truly is. And to do that, he had to show us the evil of sin, reminding us of who we once were and who it is that's responsible for our change, our redemption, our new life. Consequently, we also understood when we grasp that, that many of our family, our friends, and our neighbors are in need of this but God. This is the message, not only for us who believe, but also for the world around us. I mean, we were just like they are, trapped without hope. We were desperately sick. We were doomed to an eternity of righteous judgment an eternity in hell. And this is the case for every family, every friend, every neighbor that doesn't know God. They are doomed to an eternal judgment. And then the time came in our own lives where we could say, but God. But God intervened and changed our course. And the reality is he can change their course too if they'll turn to Christ. Well, that's the beauty of the Christmas season, isn't it? it? It truly is in our culture a but God moment for us. Every December as we consider the birth of Christ, the whole world was waiting and needing a Messiah, and then he came. I mean, we realized that he wasn't born on the 25th, and we realized that it wasn't even in December, that's not really the point. The point is, it's a time where we can all point to a but God. We can all point to the solution to the fact that we were sinners and doomed for and destined to hell. The point of Christmas is that the Messiah came for the purpose of taking away the sins of his people. Well, in Mark 2, 16 through 17, we read this. It says, When the scribes and Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, this is Jesus they're referring to, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. You were that sinner. You were that sinner. Isn't it good that that was the reason Christ came? The greatest need a sinner has is but God. It's the greatest need he has. They couldn't heal themselves. We couldn't heal ourselves. They were sick. They were desperately sick. And Jesus said that he came as a physician to heal those who would come to him. So the apostle says that we were dead in our trespasses, but in four, but God, who makes us alive in Christ. You were a prisoner to your lust and sensuality, but God sets you free from the bondage of sin. You were a child of wrath, but God has adopted you as a son and a daughter. I mean, this is the message that we needed. It's the message that the world Needs And it's the message that the Apostle Paul wishes to convey to the church in Ephesus, 
what they were saved from and what they were saved to. It's the message that a sin-sick and dying world around us so desperately needs. They need the message of, but God. But Paul didn't start with that. They need to start in the same place Paul started, and that's understanding the doctrine of the wrath of God and of sin. I mean, this is the place to begin the Christian message. Is not first with the birth of Christ, but first with the reality of sin. So that questions are rightly answered. Why does it matter that Christ was born anyway? Well, it doesn't if you don't believe you're a sinner. Why should anyone really care? Well, millions will attend Christmas Eve services and they won't really care. Why was it necessary to send the Son to be born of a virgin The reason, Paul gives us the answer in verses 1 through 3, that's the reason it matters. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Because the world is dead in their sins. Because we naturally walk bound by the governance of Satan in this world. Because we are born children of wrath. Because the world is born as a child of wrath. And so then when they ask, when they understand that, They can ask the next question, well, what do we do? And we can say, but God, repent of your sins, turn to Christ and be saved, for that's why Christ came into the world. It's the reason Christ came was to save sinners. We have a but God in Isaiah. Listen to this. You'll be familiar with it. Chapter 9, the people who walk in darkness, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation and shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloaked rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this this was promised to them and then here we are experiencing the fulfillment of that promise their promise was but God one day our promise is but God has already and so in God's providence we begin our next verse this morning really with the Christmas story but it's more than a Christmas story because it's the fulfillment of what God promised to do for his people provide a savior for all of those who would repent and trust in him you didn't know You could get 45 minutes out of a but God, did you? 
really incredible two words. Well, we've said that there are two areas of life that understanding these things have to affect. That the knowledge of the wrath of God and then that of the intervention of God and the salvation of Christ should affect us in multiple ways. It should affect us personally and it should affect our evangelism. So I want to leave you and close this morning with two quotes, both from Charles Spurgeon, that speaks one to each of those. As it concerns evangelism, Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, Oh, if you have the heart of Christians, let them yearn towards your poor, ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step betwixt them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them, and if they die unregenerate, they are forever lost. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? If you believe not the word of God and the dangers of sinners, why are you Christians yourselves? If you do believe it, why do you not stir yourself to help others? Do you not care who is damned as long as you are saved? If so, you have a sufficient cause to pity yourself, for it is a frame of spirit utterly void of grace. Do you live close by them? Do you meet them in the streets? Do you labor with them or travel with them? Do you sit and talk with them and say nothing to them of their souls or the life to come? If their house were on fire, you would run in and help them. Will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? We understand wrath and we understand God's grace. Surely it ought to give us a great love and desire to see those around us come to truth. And so we ought to, like the Apostle Paul allows us to hear, we ought to let them hear the doctrine of wrath and then the message of the gospel of grace, so that they, too, might one day read those words, but God, and experience the same joy that we do. Well, the last quote is about yourself. And the effects that these two words should have on you this morning, your own person. Spurgeon says, Jesus has borne the death penalty on our behalf. Behold the wonder. Do you look at the cross with wonder? He goes on to say, There he hangs upon a cross. This is the greatest sight you will ever see. Son of God and Son of Man. There he hangs, bearing pains unutterable. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. Oh, the glory of that sight. The innocent punished, the holy one condemned. The ever-blessed made a curse. The infinite, glorious, put to a shameful death. The more I look at the sufferings of the Son of God, the more I am sure they must meet my case. Why did he suffer if not to turn aside the penalty from us? If then he turned it aside by his death, then it's turned aside. If he paid the penalty, in other words, it's paid. And those who believe in him need not fear. 
In other words, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God intervened and made you alive. The Christmas story, the Christmas truth, is really, but God entered the world so that the sinner might be saved, might be healed, that the wicked might be made righteous, and that they might look to the cross and find salvation. Let's pray.